Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series, Disciples. Disciples respond to God's gracious gospel by loving God, connecting in vital relationships with other believers, serving in the local church, and reaching the world with the gospel. The reading today is in your bulletin and up on our screens. You can follow along. It's Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. In today's culture, we don't, uh, we don't consider feelings in the same way we do thoughts or, or actions or beliefs. If, if you start a conversation with, I just feel, you can get away with a lot. No, nobody judges your feelings, that they're not right or wrong. Uh, it's like you can't be held responsible for how you feel about something. It, it, feelings fit outside the normal moral categories. And many theologians today seem to suggest that the life of the Christian uh, disciple has little to do with how you feel and everything to do with what you think, what you believe, and even maybe more importantly, how you behave. Is that what discipleship is? Just relegate emotion to the junk drawer of Christianity and get on with the tough grind of doing what good Christians do? Just buck up and shoulder on? The authors of the Bible didn't think that. Jesus didn't think that. In the Bible, we see all kinds of expectations for our emotional life. Contentment, peace, heartfelt love, zeal, gratitude, even godly jealousy and, and appropriate anger. And here in the Old Testament, we have Deuteronomy 6, 4-5, called the Shema, because that's the first word of the passage. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. It's considered by Jews to be the most important part of the morning and evening prayer. Traditionally, it's the last thing Jews say before they die, and it's the last thing Jewish children say before they go to sleep at night. Jesus Christ and Matthew called this the most important, the first and greatest commandment. And so we're going to look at four aspects of, of loving God. We're going, to, we're going to look at uh, first why God commands us to love him. Next, the reality, which is that we can't love God. Third, paradoxically, we can love God. And finally, what's our love for God supposed to look like? First, why God commands us to love him. Second, the problem, we can't love God. Third, paradoxically, we can love God and what that's supposed to look like. So what does God mean when he tells us to love him with all our heart, all our soul, and all our strength? The heart speaks to the innermost being. It's what we treasure. Jesus tells us in Matthew 6, 21, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Commentators seem to agree that the word for soul used here is the same word in Hebrew for throat. It's about what we thirst for. And our strength is literally our muchness. So when it says love God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength, it's simply saying we're to give our whole self over to God. It's not a just do what I tell you to do and don't ask questions attitude God wants from us. It's deep, heartfelt affection. Why? Why does God tell us to love him? Does our love somehow complete God? Not at all. It's interesting that in verse 4 of our text today it says, The Lord is one. Love the Lord. 
It seems like a non sequitur, does it not? The Lord is one, therefore love. It says, why love? Because the Lord is one. Now, the commentators will tell you that there's a couple of ways to understand what verse 4 says because Hebrew doesn't have a present tense verb, is. What the passage really says is, Yahweh, our God, Yahweh one. In the earliest translations I could find, it's most often translated as we read it today. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. But some scholars have translated it as, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. And if you translate it that way, they say, it means that God is only the God of the Jews and therefore should be loved by the Jews. And, and you can probably see why some would read it that way, because it identifies whose God he is. But it doesn't speak to the nature or the character of God. And some, and some use this passage to, to um, refute the idea of multiple persons in the Godhead. But wait, if you intend to say that God is alone in the Godhead, then you have a problem. Augustine, in his seminal work on the Trinity, says that if God knows anything at all about love, he must be made up of at least two persons. The very word love has no meaning unless it's love for at least one person other than yourself. Now, I know it's easy to pass by the Trinity and not notice. We say, the Trinity, oh, sure, got it. Three in one, water, snow, steam, no problem. Either we assume the Trinity or it becomes such a high theological concept that we don't really care to deal with it. But either way, it seems irrelevant to our daily lives. But that's not true. In fact, the reality of Trinity has everything to do with who God is and why he commands us to love him. Because if God is three in one and perfect loving relationship for all eternity, then of course he's made us for love. Love is who he is. And if we're made in his image, then it's who we are. At least when we're being what he made us to be. He commands us to love, not because he needs our love, but because love is in our DNA. It's the only place we're going to find satisfaction for the deepest longing of our heart. It's who we are because it's who he is, and he made us in his image. The idea of Trinity, of one God in three persons, makes Christianity different from every other religion in the history of the world. Because if God isn't more than one person, he's a lonely God. He can't know anything about love until he creates something to love. He can't be unchangeable. He can't be all-knowing. He can't be the God of the Bible. Only with one God and multiple persons does, does the juxtaposition of these two verses, the Lord is one, therefore love, make any real sense. In effect, they're telling us that the one who made, the, made us is oneness in love, so we're to love. The, the way God is one is the way in which we're supposed to be one with him. God is love because Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one. Therefore, love. So that's why God commands us to love heart, soul, and strength, but there's a problem, and the problem is us, because we can't love. In fact, the Bible says we're at war with God. It says we hate God. Romans uh, chapter 8, verses 7 and 8, the mind governed by the flesh is, flesh is hostile to God. It, it does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. Do you see what this says? It says, in our natural state, we're governed by the flesh, by earthly desire, and we're enemies of God. Yet in Matthew 22, 
when Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? He, he replies with the Shema. He says, the greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And so if Jesus says love God with all your being is the greatest commandment, then what do you think might be the greatest sin? Might it not be loving God with all your being? Or consider how the Bible describes your not loving God. The Bible calls it adultery. Now, you probably say right now, hold on one second, <laughs> Pally. Maybe I haven't always kept all the rules. Maybe I haven't, maybe I've been a little lukewarm, but I've never rejected God. He, he might have a problem with me, but I don't have a problem with God. I've certainly never committed adultery against God. Really? Let's see the way God looks at his relationship with you. Look at Genesis, at the, at the creation story. It's full of all these epic events. The cosmos erupts into existence. The stars are flung across the night sky. Oceans rise up. Mountains explode out of the earth. The size and scope of creation is breathtaking. And how's it end? What's the big close, the big climax of all creation? It's a marriage. Is that strange? All this breathtaking formation, the collision of heaven and earth, and, and it all ends with a husband and a wife and a marriage. And that's how history begins. But how does it end? How does the Bible end? It starts with a marriage in Genesis. Let's look at Revelation. In Revelation 19.7, let us rejoice and be glad and give, give him glory for the wedding of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It says in uh, uh, Revelation 21, 21, 2, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Now, this isn't a sermon about marriage, but if marriage is the bookend between the beginning of all of human history and the end of all of human history, then it's not unreasonable to suggest that God's trying to make a point. Over and over again, God calls himself our husband. In Hosea, Jeremiah, Amos, the Psalms, and the New Testament, God uses the metaphor of marital love, marital intimacy, to describe the relationship he wants with us. And what does the Bible call it when we don't love God as we should? In James 4.4, James says, we're adulterers. He says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity with God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Over and over again in Exodus and Deuteronomy, Numbers, and, and here in James, when, when God says we're putting other things before him, we're committing adultery. The entire book of uh, Hosea is about our adultery, and it's all written in the language of sexual betrayal. It's all over the Bible. Here's just two examples in Jeremiah 13, 27. Your adulteries and lustful nayings, your shameless prostitution. I've seen your detestable acts on the hills and in the fields. Woe to you, Jerusalem. How long will you be unclean? In Ezekiel 15, 16, 15, but you trusted in your beauty and used your fame to become a prostitute. You lavished your favors on anyone who passed by, and your beauty became his. Jonathan Edwards, who was the first probably great intellectual in American history, wrote a sermon called Men, Naturally God's Enemies. And in that sermon, Edwards argues, we don't just hate God, we're at war with God. Of the almost two dozen or so 
uh, ways Edwards says we're at war with God, I'm just going to mention two. First, Edwards says we show our hate for God when we put ourselves in the role of God. And the other is our misunderstanding of God's perfection. So, so first, one of the main ways that we show our hatred for God, Edwards says, is that we substitute our will for God's will. Remember the uh, X-Files from the 90s? Box Mulder, uh, played by David Duchovny, was this sort of sincere, ever-curious FBI agent always looking for conspiracy theories. And, and this is probably the longest-running sci-fi show on TV, so it was very popular. But seven seasons in, Fox Mulder leaves the show, and he's replaced by Agent John Doggett, played by uh, Robert Patrick. And Patrick does a great job. He's a great actor. But the show falls apart. When Fox Mulder left, they rebuilt the show around characters that didn't work. The scripts fell flat. The, the performances didn't seem authentic. The, the cast didn't get along any longer. Just the whole thing lacked the same kind of wonder and, and urgency. And so knowing the show was tanking, the producers brought Fox Mulder back for seasons 9 and 10, uh, for a few seasons, for a few episodes in seasons 9 and 10, but it was, it was hopeless. The show completely collapsed. And that's our problem. We're each writing our own script, and we're casting ourselves as the lead. Everyone else is just a supporting actor in, in our story. Even God, we write his role as a supporting actor. Our show, our show fails because we're, we're, we're writing in the wrong lead. When we do that, things fall apart. There's conflict and chaos. There's, there's heartbreak. It can't be us. We can't insert Agent Doggett into a show built around Fox Mulder. We have to recognize we're only supporting players in the story that's really about Jesus Christ. He's the one who the entire universe is built around. And when we try to make it about us, even our own little speck of the universe, we'll fail because it's not about us. Now, maybe you're out there saying, well, that's not me. I'm working hard to live a moral life. I'm struggling to be decent and devout. I'm following all the rules. And that's the second way I want to show you that, that we can make ourselves God's enemies. Remember Martin Luther? Not that you knew him personally, but Luther was struggling with the verse in Matthew that says, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And, and Luther knew he could never measure up, and it tore him apart. So he confessed to the head of the monastery, and after hearing him out, the head monk says, Martin, don't you love God? And Martin fires back, love God? I hate God. Luther says, I hate God. And when you consider Jesus' commandment to be as perfect as God, it's not hard to see Luther's point of view. We, we, we believe a perfect God excludes. He looks down on us. He can only judge us. Be perfect as your father is perfect. You don't stand a chance. But you say, wait, Martin Luther, one of the giants of the church. What changed for Luther? How could Luther's hate for God be transformed into the kind of love that launched the biggest revival in Christian history, the Reformation? And how can our hate for God launch a transformation in our lives? And here's the answer. Luther came to understand what Jesus meant when he said, be perfect. As a result, even though we can't love God, paradoxically, we can. Consider the, the context of the, of, the, uh, of the scripture that gave Luther such problems. It's here in Matthew 5, 43 to 48. 
Jesus' uh, sermon. You've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. You see what it says? What defines the per perfection of the Father here in Jesus' sermon? Love enemies, pray for persecutors, bless cursors, grace for haters. Therefore, be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. He's perfectly forgiving, perfectly compassionate, perfectly merciful. According to Jesus, divine perfection, instead of excluding, is perfectly inclusive. And that's what contributed to Luther's understanding of God's grace. How perfect is God's love for you? Well, let's consider how far the Father has gone to win your heart. Stay, stay with me here, because we're talking about the Father. And, and I know that we talk a lot about Jesus and what it cost him, and we should. But let's consider for a moment what our reconciliation costs the Father. And this is a little bit of a rabbit trail, but if you give me a minute, we'll, we'll, we'll circle back and tie it all together. In Luke 14, verse 26 and 27, Jesus says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Jesus isn't literally demanding that you hate your family. Jesus says, if your love for me isn't so extreme, so vivid, that it makes your love for everything else look like hate, then you don't know me. Jesus says, if you're not ready to love me that way, don't come. If I don't have all of you, then you'll have none of me. What he's saying is that you have to love him heart, soul, and strength. Sounds like Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5, doesn't it? And people say Jesus never claimed to be God, but that's another sermon. For now, let's just get back to what it cost the Father to win your love. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in perfect, harmonious, deferential, loving relationship for all eternity, except once. When instead of harmony, the Father pours out contempt. Instead of love, he lays condemnation and wrath on his perfect, righteous, and holy Son, and both suffer the torment of infinite hell. The Son, because the Father now pours wrath and condemnation on him, but the Father, too, because now his perfect, always deferential, always faithful love is severed completely and totally. The Father must not only reject the Son he loves beyond anything, but he must pour contempt and wrath out, condemning him to infinite pain, for the infinite sin of this rotten world. Do you see how the Father had to suffer? And why did it all have to happen? Because the Father so loved you. His love for his Son had to become hate. Can you imagine that? What it cost the Father forsaking his Son so you and I never have to be forsaken for our sin? All so he could win your heart. So it shouldn't surprise us that God tells us to love him as much as he loves us. Heart, soul, and strength. Love so great it makes your love for everything else look like hate. And now we can be disciples. We can finally love God the way he loves us. We can, 
we can lay down our lives for him because the father laid down his love for the son and the son laid down his life for you. So Paul can finally say in Romans, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So God commands us to love him. We, we see that we can't love him. Then we see paradoxically, he's made a way for us to love him. Now, how do we apply this? Apply this? What's our love look like? One way we know we have peace with God is that now you want to be a disciple. You want to worship and praise him. Here, here are four verses from, from Psalm 95 about what worship and praise look like. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. Come, let us bow down to worship. And let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Today, if only you would hear his voice. Look at verse 6 first. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our, the Lord, our maker. Worship is the main way we show God we love him the way he tells us to, with heart, soul, and strength. What is worship? Here's a definition from Webster's from 1828. Worship is to honor with extravagant love and extreme submission. And that's from 1828, but I like it because modern dictionaries often define worship as almost exclusively religious, but it's not. Worship is really anything you give ultimate value. It's the, it's the thing that's most important to you, the thing you, you put over all other things. This is where my life is focused. This is where my heart's treasure is found. And like it or not, everyone is worshiping something. If you're an enemy of God, then your worship is going to something other than God, sex, money, power. Or maybe you're a moral person and, and you've taken a good thing and made it an ultimate thing. Your family, your career, your work down at the, the homeless shelter, it doesn't matter. If you're worshiping something other than God, then you're still worshiping. You're just worshiping the wrong thing and you're God's enemy. Look, you and I were both at war with God, but he loved you. He, he saved you. The, the father cut off the son he'd loved for all of eternity, and the son took the wrath against sin and died for you. He could have just left you alone, but he sought you out, and he gave himself up in your place. He could have crushed you, but instead he forgave you. He accepted you, and now instead of uneasiness with the reality of God, you feel joy, and you long to worship. It's the best way to tell if you really do love God, if you're really at peace with God. You love worshiping God. And where do we worship? Well, it starts right here. Every Sunday morning at 10 a.m., we come to church. And I think there's at least five reasons that if you're a disciple, you show up on Sunday. Five things you get out of worshiping on Sunday. And I'm sure there's a ton of other things, but Donnie cut into my time, so. <laughs> the five things are new family, knowledge, praise, feeding, and blessing. First, new family. Look at what Acts says about the, the first church. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. You see what it says? They were together. They devoted themselves to teaching and to fellowship. They ate together. They met together. Together 
wasn't just what they did, it's who they were. Christianity isn't a club that you share membership in. Christianity is a new identity. It's a, it's a new life. You're reborn into a new family. You're given the Father's name. You have a new security and intimacy. And like members of every family, you, you represent the family. You, you have new responsibilities to, to the other members of the fam family. You're accountable to one another. But you don't get the benefits when you stay away from the family. You only get the benefits when you're with the family, when you're drawing close to the family, when you're growing closer to the Father and to your brothers and sisters. If you're a disciple, then being at church on Sunday morning should be like breathing. Church is also where we learn about God. Here in verse 7 of Psalm 95. Today, if only you would hear his voice. And this talks in the language of learning from God and about God. Listening and learning. How can you love someone you don't know? This may sound odd, but if you think about it, it's easy to hate people you don't know. In fact, the entire sad mess of human history is about hatred for people we don't know and don't understand. Hatred between nations, between ethnicities, between classes, hatred between religions. It comes down to hating people we don't know and don't understand. And the only thing that, that dispels that hate, that defeats it, is knowledge, is its relationship. It's getting to know the people or the person. Even just getting to know one person in the group helps solve your hatred. And that's true of God as well, just, just as much as it is any other relationship. You can't, you can't love God if you don't know him. You certainly can't love him with all your heart, soul, and strength. And where do we learn about God? Where do we experience the heart of God? Here in church with your brothers and sisters together. This is where we're reminded of our failure. We've not loved God as we should. We've done and we have left undone. The gulf between us and God is great. He's perfect. We're not. Too far from it to ever bridge that gap. Church reminds us that we're so far worse off than we ever thought. But church is also where we learn that we are so much more loved than we ever hoped. Church reminds us he's made a way. God himself has bridged the gulf we could not. That he loves us when, even when we failed to love him. He still desires you, you and me, imperfect, flawed, people who have disfigured the image of God. But he pursues you still. He'll love you forever and he'll never forsake you. That's what the church tells us. Third, the church is where we praise God together. Let's look at uh, verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 95. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. Instead of duty and obedience, worship is a great celebration. And as the psalmist says, we're to make a joyful expression of our gratitude and, and our love. And, I lo I, and look, I, I know the people who could hear me sing this morning or are not saying, gee, that was a beautiful sound. And they're right, but it doesn't say make a beautiful sound. It says make a joyful noise. We're to express our delight and love and worship by singing. And if you don't like how someone sounds, sing louder. <laughs> Fourth, church is where we experience the means of grace. And I'm just going to mention communion. Um, 
in Luke 22, verses 19 and 20. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant by my blood, which is poured out for you. The Lord's Supper is where you're united with Christ. It's where Jesus' body feeds your soul. His blood quenches your need. It's where you're reminded that it was Jesus' broken body and shed blood that redeemed you from sin and death. Why a meal? I think there's probably a lot of reasons, but at least one is because you don't eat once in your life and then call it quits. You come back over and over and over again. We regularly share the Lord's Supper, and you share it with a family you're reborn into. The bread and the juice, they feed your soul. You want to love God with all your soul? You need his infilling presence. And finally, the, the, the reason we come to church is, is, is to get blessing. In Numbers 6, 22 and 27 through 27, we see the Lord ordering a blessing being given to his people. The Lord says, when the benediction is pronounced, his name will be put on his people and he will bless them. He's saying, this is a promise of my favor. He's saying, I don't care how you feel right now, my face is shining on you. Because in Christ, I delight in you. He's saying, you're my beloved child, and no matter where you go, I'll be with you. And he says that to us every Sunday morning. He uses one of us to pronounce his blessing, but the blessing is from him. He's the source. I know it's easy to skip past the benediction. It's just a few sentences to close the meeting. But listen, this is a blessing from God's own hand to you. And he promises you. He, he, he will sustain you. His, his grace will, will strengthen you and be with you and keep you and, and cause you to persevere. That alone is worth the price of admission. But, but that doesn't happen unless you show up. God calls himself our husband. He, he promises covenant love, a marriage. And, and I suspect that makes some of you men a little uneasy being called a bride. But it shouldn't. Because marriage is just a pale shadow of the relationship God means to have with us. What God is saying is, in my, in my eyes, you're loved and valued beyond anything you can hope or imagine. God is, is saying his love for you is so great that everything else looks like hate. God is saying he wants a relationship in, in which he will make you feel as special as he has made you to be. A relationship in which you know experience know and experience every encouragement, every beauty, every joy, and it all comes from his hand. Christians face every day with a sense of wonder. Me, a Christian? It's a miracle. How can I possibly be loved by God? How can I be a child of God? How could he possibly see anything in me? Some people think God owes them. A Christian could never think that never could believe God is indebted to them. It's amazing grace. It's, it's startling. It's unthinkable. Except it's true. And he died to make it so. If you take that into your heart, really take it in, then you'll respond in love. God is one. Therefore, love. Let's pray. Father God, please root out our desire to take your place in our lives. Help us, Father, to see that the perfection, that your perfection is a perfection in mercy and love, and that you so loved us, you laid down your life. 
and you uh, laid down your love of the Son. Help us to return that love, Father, and to recognize your glory and to experience the utter joy you have for us in loving you. Heart, soul, and strength. Thank you, God, for the, for the word. Help us consider it, take it to our heart, and apply it. In the name of Jesus Christ, Father, I pray all these things. Amen. And now the benediction. Please stand. And this is from Numbers 6, verses 24 to 26, where God commands Aaron to give a blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Go in the blessing and peace of God. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.